Hey, everybody. So I was just thinking about invasive species, as you do, and decided to check up on how we were doing with the giant Asian hornets, better known as the murder hornets, that were first detected in the United States in 2020. And we had a fantastic episode about it, and we invited guest Talissa Wilson onto the podcast to talk about the efforts to eradicate the murder hornets. And I'm happy to say, as of late October of 2022, there seemed to be no signs of the murder hornet in the greater United States area. So this is one of those rare cases of successful eradication of an invasive species. Assuming it continues in this great way, we have something to celebrate. So I thought a great way to do that would be to replay our episode from 2020 called Murder Hornets. Enjoy. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that uses dental floss for off-label purposes. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Murder Hornets. Hey, Chad. Good morning, Michael. So we always try to make our titles a little more exciting than they would normally be, I think, but I didn't have to change this title today at all. It's this is what everybody's calling it, are the murder hornets. Yeah, and I think that probably gives them a, maybe a scarier connotation towards humans than maybe they deserve. Now, if you were a honeybee, that would be an apt name. I mean, they're dangerous hornets to be sure, but uh, yeah, murder sort of connotates like a premeditated malice when really it might just be like- A flock of crows. <laughs> vigorously self-defensive oh. hornets. Ah, but, okay. Yeah. So anyway, we have a special guest with us today. Talissa Wilson works at the Washington State Department of Agriculture. And if you've heard anything about these hornets in the news, you are aware that they're in the Pacific Northwest of North America, I should say, specifically in very Northwestern Washington, as well as on Vancouver Island. And I also believe across the border into Canada, just north of Washington. And these are giant, enormous hornets. They're from somewhere else. And it turns out that Talissa has done some really interesting recent research with her colleagues at the Department of Agriculture, trying to figure out where these hornets came from that are starting to show up in Washington and Vancouver. And so she agreed to come on and talk with us a little bit about the hornets generally and tell us a little bit about that work that she and her colleagues did to figure out where these hornets came from specifically. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. So the name for these hornets is Vespa mandarinia. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. I've learned that to get away with sounding like a biologist, all you have to do is just confidently pronounce all these really <laughs> long words. Right. And as long as you sound confident, then no one is going to second guess it. It's what I've learned. I don't know if that's true, but it's totally um, true. Yeah, I, I've seen as much too. <laughs> Okay. And so that's their scientific name. And Vespa, Mike, this is for the physicist benefit, um, is a genus of hornets, the true hornets. And often the things that we might call hornets in this country are members of a slightly different genus that are more like closely related to yellow jackets. But this Vespa is very widely distributed, especially in Asia and Europe, and I think into Africa as well. And this happens to be the largest species within this genus. And I, it's apparently huge. I've never actually held one in my hand. Have you 
Talissa, have you held one of these things in your hand? I have. Yeah, they're freakishly large. They are about two inches long. They're unreal wow. to see in person. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The when you think about that, something on the the females are about six millimeters long. So they're also freakishly large. Yeah. I've been around other like really large, intimidating flying insects before. And it's, it's pretty amazing that something that you think of like insects being kind of small when they get that big, they almost start to look like toys. So where are these native to? Where do they come from? So they have a pretty wide range across Asia. They've been found southern across southern China and the northern Himalayas, parts of southern Russia, Vietnam, and South Korea, North Korea, and Japan. So I'm kind of, I've got my mental map up and I'm sort of like drawing a, a large swath that extends from basically Japan in the northeast and then down the mainland, like around all of China and over through like all of those small Southeastern Asian countries, right? Correct. What kind of habitats do they live in? They tend to be found uh, in kind of the lowlands around hilly regions. They like forested habitat, but then they're also found, you know, in I think the outskirts of cities too in forested areas, mm -hmm. but typically they're going to be in temperate to tropical areas. Okay. So how would they work their way over here then? I was imagining from Asia, maybe they, they took the Bering Strait or, or something like that. <laughs> no, I, I think that there's probably two likely paths of introduction to North America. The first would be, you know, hitching a ride through commerce. We have a lot of ports that receive ship. And so it's possible that a queen could overwinter on like a shipping container or something that was being shipped and make its way that way. They're also a food source. They're considered a delicacy. And so people do excavate the nests with the live brood and use them in stir fries and then also in fermented beverages. And so I think there's been two records of a nest interception at a port where somebody was trying to bring in a nest with live brood really? on the, the West Coast. So it's happened before and it could happen again. Hmm. So it's possible that it was intentional is, is what you're saying. I mean, in, intentionally brought, not intentionally released. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out how they could have hitched a ride. Like I have studied invasive ants before. And when I think about invasive social insects moving around, it's important that you've got like a mated queen at least and perhaps enough of a workforce if that's required to move and then what they're being shipped in like ants obviously get moved around a lot in soil or if you know you're shipping live plants or things like that but for these it just yeah i was wondering like if they were a queen was overwintering like in the wood of a shipping crate or something yeah it, it could be as far as having a successful introduction, you would need a mated queen or a, an unmated queen and then a male to come over, but she doesn't really need a whole workforce to come with her to be successful at establishing. And, you know, they typically, the queens will overwinter um, by themselves in a cavity in the ground. That's typically what they do is dig a hole in the soil, but I think they could easily uh, find a suitable location on a shipping container or in some other material. So the queen will um, overwinter turn she'll emerge in the spring she will go and look for sap and other food sources and then she'll start 
you know, looking for a good site to build a nest. And then once she finds it, she'll set to work. She'll be foraging for her food and building the nest. And then once that nest is built, she'll start laying the workers. And once the worker number gets high enough, she'll then stay in the nest and the workers will take over the foraging. And what are they foraging on? In the beginning of the season, the workers are foraging on other insects. I've read that they really like beetles in their native habitat, but then They'll also pick off random honeybees and other stuff too in that phase. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, when the nest population numbers are the highest, they'll switch into this phase called the slaughter phase that people have probably heard about. And that's when that they go out and they're they're looking for a lot more protein. And that's when they're going to do the most damage to the apiaries and actually take out whole honeybee hives. Yeah. So these honeybee hives also at this particular time of year is when they would be just full of stored resources like honey from the whole season, as well as a lot of brood. So they represent these really rich resource patches. I can see why they would be attracted to that. So that's where they get their name probably, right? The murder hornets, because one individual hornet, I've seen short little video clips can just go along and use their mandibles and clip and like decapitate the honeybees. Oh, wow. Yeah, that could be where they've gotten that moniker from. When they're in the slaughter phase, the Asian giant hornet will go, you know, and and locate a nest, a honeybee nest, and then mark it with pheromones and other workers will sometimes join that worker. And they'll literally sit at the entrance of the nest and decapitate every honeybee that comes to attack them. And I think they can do something like one worker can kill one honeybee every 14 seconds. And so they can take out a whole nest in an hour sometimes. And I've even read reports that the workers that are murdering the honeybees will stop at nighttime, fly back to their nest, and then return the next day to finish the job, sometimes even three days in a row. Oh, wow. Um, and once they're all done, they then they go in and they start chewing up the brood in the honeybee nest and make these pulpy little meatballs and carry them back to their nest to feed their pupae. Oh, I see. So they don't care about the actual bees themselves. Those are just in the way. So they're just cutting all their heads off and leaving leaving a corpse down below the nest somewhere. Wow. Okay. I have heard that Western honeybees, Apis mellifera, the thing that we keep here in apiaries and we make our honey from, that these are native to Europe through Western Asia down into Africa. And they just completely get hammered by these Asian giant hornets. However, Japanese honeybees, Apis serrana, actually has a really interesting defensive response, which suggests that it's evolved this response perhaps in the presence of this predator pressure from Asian giant hornets. Can you describe a little bit the defensive response of the Japanese honeybees? So with uh, Apis serrana, when the Asian giant hornet enters the nest, they will have this defense mechanism where they ball together around the hornet and they form this big swarm around the hornet and they increase the temperature around the hornet enough that it will kill the hornet, but it's just under the amount of temperature increase that'll hurt them. But yeah, studies have shown that the European honeybee does not have the same balling mechanism that they can use. And so that's really a a big problem that's pretty scary for our apiarists. Yeah, but I don't know. I find that you can find videos of this defensive behavior on, on YouTube. It's really cool to watch. One thing I did think would be kind of interesting to talk about is they can be dangerous to humans. There are a handful, a few dozen people who die annually from stings. 
And I was reading a little bit about this and there was even a study on the average number of stings that a person who actually dies as a result was something like almost 60. And then the average number of stings for a person who didn't die was, I don't know, something like in the twenties. So they, there's actually a little bit of data on how much you have to get stung in order for them to actually be dangerous. But that doesn't sound like a pleasant experience at all. And looking into their venom, it's one paper reported that they have a little bit of acetylcholine in their venom. And that's a neurotransmitter that can cause muscle contractions. And so I wonder if at least a part of the venom's action is to cause some sort of muscle spasms or something. And then other components of the venom have this necrotic effect. And in the papers talked about how a sufficiently large dosage of this starts to lead to organ failure. So necrotic means organ failure? No, uh, necrotic would just mean like tissue death. Okay. And so I guess where they were getting stung, I think. I read that with the tissue necrosis that where they sting, the muscle actually starts almost melting and then it gets into your bloodstream (laughs) and your blood, you know, carries it through and you almost, it's almost like going septic or something with the, and then it causes organ failure. But the thought of your muscles melting at the sting site just sounds horrible. Yeah. I've been stung by plenty of things in working with social insects. It's kind of a a job hazard that happens occasionally. And I would not want to get stung by one of these at all. Has anybody you've been working with had the occasion of getting stung? Nobody's been stung yet. And we did end up ordering some very special suits to protect uh, the people that are working on the eradication. And so they have these foam suits that are thick enough that the stingers can't penetrate. So Talissa, what do you, what is your role in this whole study that recently came out? So I got involved kind of in a roundabout way. I work for the pest program for the Washington State Department of Agriculture. And I actually work at a plant pathology lab, but we are also a molecular diagnostics lab. And so a majority of my job is detecting plant pathogens using molecular diagnostics. But with the equipment we have, we offer support to our entomologists. And so back in December of 2019, I got an email like I do sometimes saying, you have an insect leg on your desk, please sequence this and confirm our suspicions on what it is. And so that insect leg that day turned out to be the Asian giant hornet leg, the first one that we found from Blaine, Washington. Fast forward a little bit, I got connected with a researcher in Japan uh, named Dr. Junichi Takahashi, and he's a a world-renowned expert on hornets. And I ended up sending our leg from our first detection in Washington, the rest of the leg material, to him. And then he also received, there was another specimen detected, or a whole nest actually eradicated in Nanaimo in British Columbia. And so then he performed some molecular diagnostics on that. And that kind of started uh, the ball rolling with my involvement in the project. Okay. So were those two nests related? Yeah, the short answer to that question is no, they're not related. The work that he ended up doing, uh, he sequenced the mitochondrial genome from the specimen in Canada and then our specimen from Washington. And then he also included the genomes of a specimen from Japan and then one from South Korea. And what we found out is that the two specimens in North America are from two separate mated queens. And so hence the short answer, no, they're not related. They definitely don't have the same mother 
But what we don't know yet is where they introduced at the same time and did they come from the same place? Mm, and okay. so that's what my my paper that it was just published is mostly about. Is when you say molecular diagnostics, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Oh, sure. Yeah. The When I say molecular diagnostics and my job, what that means to me is that I, I'm usually using a gene region where I'm amplifying DNA from that region to detect this target gene region. And that's used as a diagnostic. For the Asian giant hornet, the first work I did was I used a barcoding gene region, which for insects is the CO1 gene for cytochrome oxidase. And you basically, you can just compare it across a database of other sequences from that same region, same species, and and get a species ID. And so I did that initially. And then afterwards, when I sent the hornet leg off to the researcher in Japan, he sequenced the full mitochondrial genome. Hmm. So it sounds like the work that your colleague in Japan did found some initial things out, like definitely identifying it as mandarinia. And then it it sounds like that kind of set the stage for the next phase, which is the work that you recently published. Can you take us through that work that you did and what additional things we found out from that? I'll just back up a little bit. The barcoding of the CO1 region is what confirmed it as Vespa mandarinia, although it's pretty easy to ID morphologically. But uh, (laughs) the work that the researcher in Japan helped out with is that we sequenced the mitochondrial genome of four specimens, including the one in Canada and then ours in Washington. And what that work showed us is if we could better understand how these two specimens are related to each other. And we were expecting that they would have been from the same introduction. We were expecting that there would be a lot of sequence similarity between those two specimens. And what we found is that the Canada specimen and the Washington specimen were actually quite different and that they more closely matched the ones found in South Korea and Japan. Our specimen from Washington state was a closer match to the specimen from South Korea and the specimen from Canada was a closer match to the one from Japan. And so Hmm. we we were pretty surprised to find that out. And that's what that, uh, that work showed us. It also sets the stage for, you know, for more work to be done. We have to look at more individuals from across the native range, but we have four mitochondrial genomes to look at and compare with as we get more information. The interesting thing about our results is that until we know more, we can't say very much. And so what we don't know is if, for instance, if we were to take more individuals from, let's say, Japan and sequence their mitochondrial genomes, do we have specimens in Japan that are present that match those of South Korea? We don't really know what kind of genetic overlap there is in Japan and South Korea, and in fact, across the whole range of the species. Because there were no replicates from any individual population, we can't say much with certainty about the origin at this time. Okay. Do you know where in Japan this particular Japanese specimen came from that was included? So do you mean like, is it northern part or the southern part? Yeah, like if it's way up from Hokkaido, I wonder if that's a very different population than something like that's down closer to Korea. Like, I I wonder if there's some population structure on Japan. Yeah. And then nobody's really sure right now what the population structure is going to look like in Japan. There's some been some grant proposals that WSDA has put through. Many researchers are working on gathering specimens and getting specimens from across the range to better understand that. And so hopefully, you know, we'll have an answer uh, in a year or so. I want to go back to graduate school and do this work. This sounds awesome. Sounds <laughs> yeah. super interesting. Okay, so what you're saying then is the samples that were found in Washington State and in Vancouver seem very different, and they seem to match more from two very different regions 
from Asia, one from Correct. Japan, one from. But what you're saying is that we don't have enough numbers to to say that definitively. It's theoretically possible that there's a lot more overlap in another region. So I mean, at first it sounded like you were saying, okay, well, it sounds like maybe there were two different people trying to bring food over, one from Japan, one from Korea, or something like that. And that may be possible, but it, it could also be possible that it could be also from one set event because we don't have the data to know. That、uh, is well, correct. Oh, I I guess I thought that it was certainly one probably came from Korea because they're so similar to other ones in Korea. But then the ones that ended up on Vancouver, is it fair to say that it's probably true that that was a separate introduction? But where exactly it came from is still kind of an open question. I I would hesitate to say even that, just because you know we may never know how those got introduced. I can say with certainty that two, it is likely that two mated queens got introduced, but we don't know, and we may never know. Did they show up on the same shipping container, or were they you know carried in the same backpack for food? You know, I I'm、right. not sure about that, and we also don't know if. They came from the same location or a different location. Okay. Just like we receive international shipments in all of our ports, there's a lot of commerce between South Korea and Japan and different regions in Asia, and so the genetic overlap of the populations could be quite extreme. We really don't know, but we're working on it. So hopefully,、yeah. we'll have answers. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the eradication that、yeah. has happened in Washington? Yes, they caught five live workers, and they were able to attach、uh, radio tags to three of them. And one of those, they were able to follow back to the nest. I think the other two chewed off the radio tag. And I had read something about they used dental floss to tie the the little trackers on there. Like、yes. a little backpack or something. You know, before they trapped the five live ones, there was an attempt on the first one that they caught a four, and they tried using glue, and the glue, I think, it, it didn't dry fast enough, and so we lost that one, or that radio tag fell off. So then they switched to the dental floss, and that worked really well. Although the the hornets can chew it off if they want to. <laughs> And so basically, then they have these detectors, and and so they're just like driving around, like <laughs> trying to get as loud of a, a signal as possible. I think they did it on foot, and I,、okay. I think yeah, there were several people, and they were just running after it. <laughs>、mm-hmm. Yeah. So once they were able to get the signal to the nest and locate the nest, they found that it was actually in a tree and not in the ground, which you know Asian giant hornets are known to, to nest in cavities too. And so when they located the tree. I think within a matter of days, they obtained, you know, the permissions they needed and got their supplies ready. I think it was up about eight feet in the trees, so they had to get some scaffolding rented and set that up. And then our ERAD team donned their suits、uh, early in the morning, climbed up the scaffolding, and ended up spraying. A bunch of foam into the cavity, like quick dry foam, and then they left one little opening where they could insert a vacuum. Before they did the vacuuming, though, they also wrapped the tree in cellophane to help if there was any other cavities. And so early in the morning, it's still cold enough that the nest wasn't active. They're very slow moving. Plus, they'd all be home at that time, so there wouldn't be anybody、yeah. out foraging. You wouldn't miss anybody. Correct.、Okay. Yeah. And so they were so slow moving that once they had everything ready to go, that they had to sit and hit the tree to、uh, anger the nest and wake them up. And then they were, you know, able to turn on the vacuum and 
I think they sucked out about 85 hornets when they did that. After that, they pumped in a bunch of CO2 and then sealed up the rest of the nest. And then they came back, I think, two days later, and they were able to take down the tree and then remove the nest. Mm -hmm. And so they've been going through the nest contents to try to count how many workers and how many queens are in there. And I think they reported that initially they found two queens, but at the last count, they have 85 additional queens. Whoa. So, <laughs> wow. Which yeah, is not I mean, an unusual number of queens for a nest to have, but I'm sure the public like, will hear 85, you know, and be like, oh my God. That's blowing my mind. I, you know, Chad's the one who does that sort of thing, but that feels like, I thought every nest had one queen or, or is this like 85 different nests within the. Well, were these, I assume these were virgin queens. And now their next job is to try to figure out whether or not the queens have been mated, how many are mated and how many are unmated. Wow. So an additional 85 queens, these are, I mean, each one of those represents the establishment of an additional colony. So from this single nest, eradicating it prevented the establishment of up to possibly 85 or even more, depending on if you find more. It'll be really wow. interesting to know if they'd been mated. I mean, who who would they have been mating with if not perhaps their own brothers from the same nest? Because Unless there are other nests around. Well, yeah, that was my question. Are there other nests? Or was do we happen to just get lucky and catch this one early enough that it hadn't spread out? I, our managing entomologist has said that he suspects there are other nests out there. How many, we don't know. But it, it is likely that there are a couple other nests out there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I just read, I think yesterday, there was a report northeast of this nest eradication site, there was a hornet seen in Abbotsford in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I think that's about 15 or 18 miles from the nest site. So it seems unlikely that that would be from the same nest, right? That almost certainly Correct. would have to be yeah. from another. The workers I mean, typically only travel outside of the nest, maybe two kilometers. It is not known. There's a huge knowledge gap in how far the queens will travel. I've read that they're capable of traveling 30 kilometers in a day, but you know, how far do they go out? I'm not sure when they're going to overwinter or establish a new nest. But yeah, I, I think everyone pretty much agrees that there are other nests out there. Okay. And so then you said that, so they have the, the entire stump or they the, the trunk of the tree, they cut that down. And that's now back in a lab someplace. And they're digging through that and searching for more queens and more workers and trying to get some sense of what the population was. Mm -hmm. And so by putting the foam in, did that kill all of the ones that were in there? Or are there still, were there like larvae and stuff that are, are now starting to hatch out? There's the larvae and the pupa, and a lot of them were still alive. They're basically slowly starving to death. So they're pretty slow. None of them can fly, so they're not too dangerous. But one of our entomologists, Chris Looney, brought a queen into the, our lab the other day to weigh it. And it was just very slowly moving. And it's, it was clear that it was still alive, but it was they're all mm -hmm. starving to death. And in fact, he said that when he is working on the nest, he can hear the pupae like crawling and making the scratching noise on the cells because apparently they do that when they're hungry and they want to be fed. And hmm. so while he's working on weighing and counting and looking at the specimens, he can just hear this little rasping noise of all the larvae trying to be fed. Oh, see, now you're making me feel sorry for them. <laughs> they're murderous decapitators. They just but... want to live like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Don't be taken in by them, Michael. Okay. Don't be taken in. <laughs> so we kind of talked about what's next with the work. Can you, 
tell us a little bit about the monitoring program. Is this just based on people getting lucky and seeing one or are there actual traps out in various locations and how do those work? Yes, I believe WSDA has set over 4,500 traps and we've actually had a huge citizen science involvement in our trapping program, which has been amazing. So people are putting their own traps out and we're putting traps out And the traps are basically just two liter jugs that are filled with fermented orange juice and uh, rice wine. So those traps are designed to catch and basically drown the Asian giant hornet workers when they're out foraging. And then we also have set out live traps. And so moving forward, there's going to probably be some trapping effort to catch queens when they emerge in the spring. And that is just you know, you're not going to catch a lot of them, but any queen that you do catch, you could potentially stop from, you know, them establishing a new nest. So I imagine we'll be putting traps out to catch queens. And then really the next trapping season isn't going to really get going until July or August of next year. That's when we're going to start seeing workers get caught again. And then it'll start over where we're going to try to catch live ones and then locate more nests. Hmm. Excellent. Well, I mean, given given the comparative similarities between the native range, like Japan down through Eastern Asia, China down through those countries in Southeast Asia, it's totally understandable how it would be that the Northwest over here would be a very suitable kind of habitats for them to invade. Do you know if, if you study invasive species, you're kind of, and I'm, I'm guessing that invasive plants are kind of on your radar is something that you think about pretty regularly in your job. Do these hornets exhibit some of the features of the classic invasive species that we would have predicted that this would be a nasty invasive species, or is it just a freak or a fluke occurrence that they just kind of got introduced and now here they are. Uh, Vespa mandarinia, along with uh, other vespids, have been on a watch list. So WSDA is aware that they could become established and that there are possible routes of entry. And so, yeah, it's definitely an insect that people watch out for and that there's been, you know, publications to help train people on looking out for. And yeah, there's a number of potential invasives, you know, that our state is looking out for in the Pacific Northwest in general. And this would be a good time to put in a plug for the Invasive Species Council's app that they have, which is actually what was used to report the first Asian giant hornet found in Washington. I could give you guys a link to that to share on your your notes page. Absolutely. um, yeah, yeah they, they have on their app several different potential invasive species that we're keeping an eye out for. Okay. Yeah. Thinking again about invasive species, like it pops up in so many different ways. It's not something that people often think about, but on this podcast, we've talked about several invasive species. And it's just that, I mean, the issue is that, as we talked about earlier, the honeybees here are not able to defend themselves. They've never seen this this enemy before. And so, so they, they're just getting their heads lopped off and there's no defense. To that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny that, you know, I think about invasive species all the time because it's my job, but I guess if it's one thing I want people to know is that, you know, our state department of agriculture, we have a whole program and our job is to help protect Washington state from invasive species. So you may not think yeah. about it all the time, but we're working hard. <laughs> to yeah. keep them out. I, I mean, I, I do think about Himalayan blackberries a lot. <laughs> they keep yeah. popping up in my yard. Scotch broom. Well, yeah. And I mean, in addition to habitat loss, um, invasive species are one of those main drivers of biodiversity decline. And so it, it's a big ticket item to keep track of. Correct. Yeah. They're apex predators and they go after more than just honeybees. Well, thank you yeah. for 
talking with us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to our podcast, and that way you will download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. Like us on Facebook to see some of the content that we have promised to post up there. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'll have to email it to me or, or let me know once it's published and I'll listen. Yeah, I'll send you a Well, link. I mean, you should subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> yes. And then you will download the episode as soon as it becomes available. Yes.